Greetings, Redeemer Church. I wonder how many of you have got vaccinated. You've probably heard a lot of people say, even if you've got just a dose of it, when you end up catching it, the effect is mild. Now, I was reading through this text and I had a very similar thought, let me explain. You had this text just read out of you, chapter 10, verses 1 to 25. Did it move your heart? Did it have a certain effect on you? We've heard this so many times before, haven't we? This is not new to us. I hope you're not lying down on the couch, scrolling through your phone and listening to this. You see, just like the traditional vaccine, where they give you a little dose of the virus that gets you to eventually become immune to it, a lot of Christians over time hear short passages and different doses of scripture, eventually getting them even immune to this. Now that must not be and it cannot be. Every time you and I hear the true gospel, our hearts must well up in worship. And so today, as, as you walk along with me through this text, would you ask the Lord to lay these words afresh on your hearts, even as we consider sin and salvation and what the effect should be on people who are redeemed? So to walk along with me, I've broken this up into three units and there are three points you can follow along with. The first one would be the law that reveals sin. The second would be the son that redeems sinners. And the third, a gathering that reveals, or a gathering that rather reflects the gospel. So the law that reveals sin, the son that redeems sinners, and a gathering that reflects the gospel. So look with me at the opening verses, verses 1 to 4 that you can see up here. And as you glance through that, you notice in the opening verses that the author tells us the law was only a shadow of good things to come. And when we read that, we must remember that the law in itself was holy. The law reflected God's nature. It taught people on how to be in a relationship with Him and even to reflect Him. But it was only a shadow of things to come. The law was pointing to the real thing, but in itself was not the real thing. And you look through the verses and you realize why the author is saying this, because you can see that these sacrifices according to the law were continually being offered. They were repetitive. So priests were slaughtering animals all day long. In fact, history records that during the Passover, hundreds and thousands of lambs were slain. But notice, yet, it never made perfect those who draw near. In other words, this was ineffective. I recall as a child going on my annual vacation and visiting my grandmom. I was in a village, and I would spend the whole day out in the field, and at the end of the day, I wasn't allowed inside the house. And obviously, I was covered in filth. And so I would have to go have this really long bath, and I enjoyed it. it the, the, the bathroom was outside the house, and I would stand beside this well, and I would have this extended version of a bath, delighting myself. And when I finished that, I recall walking into the house. Now I'm dripping in water, feeling absolutely spotless. I've got a towel around me as a kid. And as I begin walking into the house, that part of the house was covered with tiles. Some of the tiles were removed to replace it with a big glass piece so that sunlight would come in. You see, we didn't have electricity on that side of the house. And so as a kid, as I walked by, I would always be drawn to this beam of sunlight. And as I'm clean walking through, when I actually step into that beam, I notice something that I don't see otherwise. I suddenly notice a zillion dust particles that I'm in the middle of. I was filthy. I take one step out of the light and I can't see anything. You see, the light wasn't the problem. It drew me. In fact, I needed it to get further into the house. And similarly, every time the Old Testament rituals went on, it had an effect that was similar to that. It drew you towards God, but it always revealed your sin. It always left you feeling needy and unclean. 
And so you could see this was a way in which God was trying to draw them, but they really didn't have access like you and I have today. Well, that raises the question, why the sacrifices? And the verses here clearly tell us they were a reminder of sin. So when a sincere Jew approached God, bringing his animal or whatever that was, the offering was, he knew deep in his heart, and even as he carried it, that lamb or that sacrifice was not going to cut it. His sin and his rebellion against God, how was this dead animal going to pay for it? And so the verses over there end by telling us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Now that doesn't sound very encouraging, isn't it? God was drawing people, but they really didn't have access and moreover, they always left with a feeling of guilt. But remember the verse at the beginning, it says this was only a shadow of good things to come. What was to come then? Well, the next verse gets us out of the shadows. It says, when Christ came, bringing us to the second part, which is the son that redeems sinners. And so as you, as you look through verses 5 downwards over here, I just before we get through those verses, I want this to sink in. When we say, when Christ came, speaking about his incarnation and his coming, think through this. When was the previous time, as you flip back redemptive pages in history, when was the previous time God came? And you can actually think of the giving of the law where God himself descended on Mount Sinai. And you know what, what, the, what that was like? It was thunder. There was lightning. It was dreadful. When he spoke... People couldn't deal with it. And when an animal touched the foot of the mountain, they, were, they would have stoned that animal to death. And in many different ways, God was telling them, please get out of my way because I am holy and you are not. And every time we, people came close to God, it's like bringing your wrist close to fire. You, you just can't do that. And so keep that thought in mind when you think of the words, when Christ came into the world. Remember the opening verses in this series. Remember the first sermon that we heard who Jesus was. He is the exact representation of the Father. He is God, the same nature, the same glory. And so when we think of this, we're saying, well, that unapproachable God who came and gave us the law, where people couldn't even get close to him, where they dreaded him, he now, a second person now comes, veiling his glory, becoming a man, making himself approachable. Not just making himself approachable, we'll see a lot more than that. But Keep that picture in mind, because to get the crux of these verses, we have one, one way to think through this is, here's the problem of sin, and here's how God is distant because of our sin. And here's who God is, and how does he now bridge that gap? So when you read on further from verse 5 downwards, in 5 it says, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you've given me. Now Christ is speaking, Christ takes on human flesh. But the author now is quoting a verse from Psalm 40, a psalm that David wrote. When you think of that, 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 ver that a sentence like that is not new to us. We've heard this in different parts of the prophets and in the, in the Old Testament, isn't it? Where God was actually displeased quite often. In fact, in some places he found sacrifices an abomination. But let's not forget, the sacrifice in itself was not to blame. The person who bought the sacrifice was the problem. Most often, people were hypocrites. People came with an unclean conscience. People just reduced this to a ritual, and there was really no cost involved. They just walked up to it in a casual manner. And so there's a strong statement as well the author's making when he's telling the Jews at this point in time, taking something that they were holding on to. This was important to them, right? And we've seen this before in our theme in Hebrews. We're saying, let go of this. Don't return to Judaism. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. And so now... 
he's taking a verse like that from their own scriptures and we want to think through what he's trying to tell us, how Psalm 40 connects to this text we're looking at in Hebrews 10 today. I don't think the text this morning is, is to do with how men failed up to live, failed to live up to the sacrificial system. Because in the context here on Psalm 40 is David is experiencing gloom and despair and he's overwhelmed with sin. So he's not being a hypocrite. He actually is feeling needy and he longs for salvation. He speaks about how God delivers him in the past. And in these verses specifically, he comes and he dedicates himself to God, to God's will. And so then, with a sincere heart, he says these words. In fact, the words specifically in Psalm 40 were, you have given me an open ear. Or you can translate that a little more literally, saying you have dug out my ears. And what David is saying is, God opened up his sinful channels where he now understood that God was not interested in external rituals and a mere religious appearance. God was looking for a heart of obedience of people who truly wanted to do his will. Uh, so what David says, I have come to do your will. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Sounds like a resolute spirit. But you and I know David could not and did not keep God's will perfectly. We've seen this in our study of First and Second Samuel. He sinned so many times. And so this psalm, like many other messianic psalms, is actually looking further to how this will be lived out by David's greater son. And what the author in Hebrews is doing it is helping us bridge that and see this, see how Christ fulfills this. Remember how Christ on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 told the disciples walking with him, saying, everything that is said about me in the Old Testament, it has to be fulfilled. And so we know in so many ways, the Old Testament, God was revealing himself and teaching people to respond to him, but it was always pointing to what he would do through his son. And so when you think of this, the author is pleading with them saying, Judaism really is, you've got to look past beyond this because Jesus is so much, Jesus is greater. Jesus is something new to offer, moving on with the new covenant. This is found fulfillment in Christ. And so he takes this verse and the verse specifically is, the Lord prepared a body, God prepared a body for the Lord Jesus. As in God's desire was not just in sacrifices in that system. He had a greater desire. He, David had a desire to be saved and he was needy. He wanted to do God's will. But how was he going to? How are you and I, in fact, going to say, I have come to do your will? Well, we don't feel a sense of despair when we read this because Jesus does what we could not. He is that resolute, obedient, joyful servant who does the Father's will. He not only does it, in the following verses we'll see how he actually enables us to as well by giving us his spirit. And so when we think of this verse saying he came to do the Father's will, the other question is what was the Father's will? We've heard the Lord say this in his own ministry when he was here. Think of John 6, 38, for example, where he says, I have come to do your will. What's the context there? He's, he's presenting himself as a bread of life. People understood this a little easily at that point in time because wheat had to be crushed so they receive bread which sustained life. And Jesus was saying similarly, to have life that is truly life, he would have to be crushed so you and I may live. And so when you read on, keeping that in mind, in verse 10, he's telling us, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The one who, who came down to give us the law, who was unapproachable, the one who knew a sacrificial system could only draw us to an extent, he had greater desires. 
And so he himself, God himself, a second person now climbs up another mount. He goes down the road to Golgotha and he gives himself as a sacrifice. And that is what we're reading about, the final, true, perfect, eternal sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, we have to pause at this point and also think of why does it have to be Jesus, God himself on the cross? Well, in the very opening pages of scripture, when you and I read through Genesis in 2.17, he would say, you will surely die. And he God warned them because he loved them. Right? And they do exactly that. By the time you get to chapter 3, you see how Satan lures them with a sinful, dreadful proposition. You can be like God. And Adam and Eve succumbed in all of man. Now, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who rebelled and their sin being imputed to us. It almost makes us feel like we're victims of the right doctrine. No, it's not. Haven't you and I rebelled personally as well? As true as that is. Have you heard God's law about do not covet? Have you rebelled? Have you heard you must have no other idols other than me? We have cleansed our fists against heaven and against God. That dreadful sin to be like God is a scary thought, but we don't sometimes look at it that way. Do you like being in control of situations? Would you, or, or do you say, Lord, you know, this is your life. You can decide how I spend my time. You can decide what to do with my desires and my ambitions. In fact, everything that I own, all my money belongs to you. You can decide what to do with it. No, no, let's not even go there. That's really difficult. The cost of rebelling against God who is holy and dictating terms, that is not something you and I can pay for. It took Jesus to represent us as man on the cross and also Jesus as God to pay because the price was infinite. That's why hell is eternal, because if you and I try paying for it, we'd be spending time in eternity paying for it. But this perfect sacrifice once and for all has done this for us. Now also notice the words once for all, because we don't need to re-crucify Jesus. Because there may be churches where they represent the sacrifice, or they offer forgiveness on a weekly basis, or different means by which you receive grace. That is a serious departure from the gospel and from these verses. Now, move on and look at verses 11 downwards with me. And you'll notice, after Christ offered the sacrifice once and for all, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, we've heard this so many times, isn't it, before? You're clear with this on how the, the priests never really finished their task. They had to keep going back and forth. But Jesus, with his sacrifice, has completed this. And not just that, notice the words, he's now waiting that delay speaks about Christ's mercy and his long-suffering. He's waiting. But at the same time, you can see the verse says, victory has been declared. And so the high priest has also taken the office of the king. And so when you and I read this sentence, by a single offering, he has made perfect all who are being sanctified. It's speaking about us. We're the church. We're the ones being sanctified. And we have been made perfect. Now, that has a lot of application. I want to draw a specific application on how we relate to one another and how we see one another in church. If this is true, then does it shape the way you, you see other people, other members, and everybody else who are brothers and sisters? Try this. The next time you're on a Zoom call, whether it's on a member meeting or if you're attending church, or when, hopefully when we gather in person soon, look around you and try and grade people on a scale of 1 to 10. You're probably going, that's a horrible thought. But lots of us do that subconsciously. You look around and you say, that guy thinks he's meditating, but I know he's taking a nap. 
or she's the kind who's always checking Instagram between meetings. But this person, he, he knows a few, he knows scripture better than me. And so we have certain grades, but this changes all of that. Suppose, let's say two of my boys, my twin boys wrote a math exam and they came back. I, and, I, and one of them said, Dada, I got 10 out of 100. I say, okay. And the second one says, Dada, I got 20 out of 100. If I look at the second, my second boy and says, good job, you're twice better than your younger brother or your twin brother, does that make any sense? No, they're both horrible on a scale of 100. What are we comparing ourselves with? On a scale of infinity against God. And this reminds us that his sacrifice has perfected us. That's the efficacy of Christ's atoning sacrifice. You and I remember, we know that precious verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin, so you and I can be the righteousness of God. And so his death was sacrificial, his death was substitutionary, and this is also telling us he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the passage goes on in verses 15 to 18 down where you can see we, we, we dealt with some of this in our previous sermon as well, but the Holy Spirit progressively in the Old Testament has been pointing people to this through those covenants, beginning, beginning with the Adamic and Abrahamic and Mosaic and David, the Davidic covenant down to the new covenant um, and telling us that the prophets knew a time was coming where something glorious was going to happen. Isn't it fascinating that in the opening chapters of Acts, when the church gathers, on the day of Pentecost, when they're actually celebrating the giving of the law, the lawgiver himself comes. And now he's not writing it on tablets of stone, but he says he will write his words in our hearts, in our hearts and in our minds. And look at the dimension. The opening verse was about drawing near to God, but now he's going to indwell in us. He's going to enable us to even keep the law. And so as you think through all of that, uh, we, we want to also differentiate the point the author is making here. In the previous chapter, the point was the old is gone, now you have the new covenant, and the old is obsolete. Here the emphasis is that our sins are forgotten, that there is no more sacrifices, it has been paid for. Now that again has such rich application that a lot of us sometimes may not truly enjoy. In other words, this is telling us all that shameful stuff, my dark past and yours, everything that we did is gone. Yeah, my, my life, my, my sins were as red as scarlet, but now they're as white as snow. <laughs> that my sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. And so the gospel is telling us your sins are forgiven, forgotten, and paid for. That's, that's incredible grace. And you think about this and you say, why then is the gospel still not understood? Why aren't people rushing to it? Why is it still scarcely preached and understood? Now, I heard a conversation between a pastor and a new member in a church. This was in a different country, I think somewhere in the US. And so the, the lady was asking the pastor, saying, why wasn't this ever preached all my life in the other churches that I visited? And the pastor said, I don't know, you tell me. And she said, I think I know why. Because as a taxpayer in my country, I have certain rights. I have a say in this country that I'm a citizen of. But when it comes to the kingdom, it's different. Because when you speak of grace, you really have no rights. Because what did you do about this? He called you. He draws you near. He pays for your sins. He forgets your past. He assures you you'll be with him when he comes. You're just a recipient sucked into this grand story of redemption. You see, you really have no rights. You hear that? 
which means you and I are to be, are to be joyful slaves now to, to Jesus. You see, the substitutionary part is attractive to a lot of people, but this participatory aspect is really not something that people delight in. We, we, we want to sing songs about the cross. Uh, we want to speak about Jesus' death. We never want to get on the cross ourselves. And so, as ones who are being sanctified, that must be a response in our hearts to this gospel. Jesus died for us, but have I? It wasn't just the temple that was a gory mess. What was even more difficult as a sight was that innocent man who was dragged along the streets of Palestine. God didn't just behead him in his mercy, but he had to be crushed, and the weight of our sins and our iniquities had to be laid on him. You think of that, and you wonder how the cross became a fashion statement later, isn't it? I doubt when COVID is over, you, are, you and I are going to carry mugs and T-shirts with been there, done that, or with C-19 written on our shirts. You probably want to forget about it. As you, when people have it on their necks and on bumper stickers and plastered all over their walls, it sometimes does cross your mind saying, oh, this is, this is about Christ dying. This is also about their death. It should be. We, we, we hope it is at least. The point being, this text is not simply for us to admire. This text is also calling us, as those who are being sanctified, to live and walk like Jesus did, like he told us to in 1 John 2, 6. And so that thought would bring us further to the last unit, which actually speaks about application. Well, that's the gospel. Okay, here's the problem of sin, and here's what Jesus did. How do we now respond to what Jesus did for us? The third point being a gathering that reflects the gospel. And so look at verses 19 downwards, and you will notice in the opening verse there, it says, we have confidence, or not self-confidence, but you've got confidence now to come boldly into his presence. Based on what? Because of the blood of Jesus, because of his death. Now, again, are you enjoying this incredible truth in your walk? Let me ask you this. Have you had days where you intentionally sin? You're a believer, things are going well, but you intentionally maybe paid a bribe, you intentionally maybe indulge in an act of lust. How do you feel that night? You, you want to read your Bible, but now you're saying, I'm, I've been going around in circles. And you feel guilty, and it takes people two days sometimes to get back to coming into his presence. I don't know if you've experienced that. Have you also had an experience where things are going pretty well? There's been nothing that you've intentionally done wrong, and you're waking up early and you're going well, you're able to remember scripture, you're in your cell group meetings regularly, and on those days, you can come into his presence and just speak freely to the Father. If both those are true, then what seems to be the basis on which you are coming? What seems to be fueling your confidence? Maybe it's my works or my performance. This approach wants to remove all such patterns in our life. This is going to prevent us from pride and from guilt. In other words, when I walk really well and I come and stand before him and say, Father, I still remember it's not because of what I've done. It's not because I spent two hours in the morning with him. It's because of the finished work on the cross. And on, on, on the flip side, if I fall, I hope we don't, but when we intentionally sin, isn't it fascinating that at that moment when I could be covered with guilt, Godly sorrow draws me to salvation. I can still call him Father. I can still speak to him at that moment. And so that's the confidence that the author wants us to enjoy. And so it says we can come confidently. How? The verse says, in full assurance of faith. Now the opening verses said, it, it, 
people were drawing near, but you notice now they really didn't have access then. But this drawing near seems to be seems to be a level of intimacy that people always look forward to. And when you notice the verses over here, as you read down from 21, you will see even now the author is using a lot of the Old Testament imagery. You can see words like curtain when he speaks of his body, the curtain being torn and a priest and sprinkled and bodies washed. And the Old Testament imagery was like this. We don't have to get into the details, but we're pretty familiar on how the high priest with great fear would represent the people and get past that curtain. There were two cherubim there, but he would get past with that and keep the rituals carefully. And when he gets in there, among many things, what was, what was there in the Ark of the Covenant was a law that was broken. People did not keep the law. So the, it's almost like God is looking from above and you deserve his wrath because you didn't keep his law. But just above the law was a mercy seat where they would pour out the blood of an innocent animal. He's taking that imagery and he's connecting it with Christ, saying now because of Christ's body on the cross, you've got access. These curtains have moved. He, he draws you in. Where's the previous time in history you and I have seen in Scripture two cherubim guarding us, saying you don't have access anymore. You've rebelled back in Genesis 3. You, you, you can't enter God's presence now. And those cherubim part. And now when we get in there, we still, we still don't keep the law perfectly. But on the mercy seat, it's not the blood of an animal. Christ himself, he is our propitiation. And the Father does not look down with wrath because he is pleased once and for all. And so he can now wrap his arms around us and call us his children. So church, it says, come with a true heart. And even when I read that, I'm saying, Lord, our hearts are deceitful. But notice the words there, come assured in faith. What else does it say? It says, come now because your hearts are sprinkled because you have been washed. This sprinkling and washing was something, it's not an external ritual. But our minds are drawn to a prophecy that people waited to be fulfilled in Christ back in Ezekiel 36, where God promised that he would wash us of our idols. That's the kind of washing, that he would remove a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, that he would put his spirit in us and move us to keep his commandments. And so that has been fulfilled now in Christ. And so in verse 26, he says, press on with hope. Why? Because God is faithful because of who he is. I, I love scripture like Philippians 3.12, which affirms this again to us, which says, Paul says, and we can say the same thing, I press on to take hold of that for which... Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's our assurance. And so he, in closing, he's moving us in verse 24 to saying, look, you've got to do something, church. You have to stir one another up. Encourage one another and stir one another up. Notice in all these three verses, the words are let us, let us, and let us. Three times. Now, it is important to emphasize that because we live in a culture that reeks with individualism. You can't do this alone. Jesus is not coming back for me. He's coming back for the bride, his church. And that's why we, we plugged into a local church. We want to we pour ourselves out within that church. And so stir one another up is in the context of a body. It's like how when you go for a barbecue, you know, sometimes you're working hard at it. There's red pieces of coal, but there's some black ones. But as the wind blows, it's just a matter of time because before every piece becomes red hot. And now there's a fire. And it's that kind of gospel revival that is calling us to look at what he's done for you. Taste that redemptive love. Pour yourselves out and encourage one another. And so he says, how? He says, love and good works. 
Those are marks of a community where the gospel is not just being preached, but it's palpable, it's felt, it's visible. You see, when Paul writes to different churches like the church at Philippi or Colossae or Thessalonica, he, he would always say things, often say things like how he's encouraged because he can see what the gospel is doing in them. And he speaks about their faith and their love. How does he know without even visiting them sometimes? I don't think Timothy's sending, them, sending him report cards of how well they did in their systematic theology class, or they all got an A. No, what was palpable was their love for one another and their good works. They got reports. I think we can say the same thing. We can be encouraged as a church and praise God for the effect of the gospel that you and I witness now. Whether it's meal trains, whether it's cell groups, whether it's constant intercession and prayer for others, we are tasting that that encouragement that comes because of Christ's love for us and his call to come together. And so, brothers and sisters, continue to pray like the verse calls us to. Encourage one another. Open up books, but don't just open up books when it comes to discipleship and accountability. Open up your lives to one another. In light of a text like this, don't try and look for a perfect accountability partner. He doesn't exist. But there are lots of sinners saved by grace, and we need one another. In fact, I used to be worried about how, how am I going to encourage others and open myself to the other person? Because what if this person is weak and goes and tells somebody else about me? Then I think about it in light of a text like this. What's my ultimate desire? Christ died. I want to be united. I want the self to die. Oh, my image is at stake. It's precisely that image that I want to kill. So let them go and tell the other people. Finally, he reminds us that we need to step up this encouragement. And he asks us, the reason he gives us is why. He says, because the day is drawing near. It's not just a day. The Lord is drawing near. There's so much of evidence. Love of men growing cold. The gospel being preached in all nations. And, and, and even a visible manifestation where it's a time of judgment and repentance now. And so we must not just think of these days as days that are difficult. These are days that are actually drawing us closer and closer to the time where the Lord is coming back. And so the author wants to encourage us. We won't just be singing about this. We won't just be talking about it or preaching about it. But we will see our true and ultimate sacrifice. We will see the risen lamb himself slain for us. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Lord, would you help us understand the depth of your love for us? Would you cause our hearts to always be filled with gratitude? And would you compel us with your love and make us a church that live a lives worthy of this call? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.